Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming to you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool program for you all today. I have no doubt you will learn, grow, and be inspired by today's show. Before we get into our main event, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any of our new shows, and it makes the algorithm gods happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. Also, be sure to visit our website, notrealart.com. Sign up for our newsletter to keep your finger on the pulse of everything we're doing here at Not Real Art for artists and our lovers. A lot of great stuff there. On the website, you'll see you'll get uh, free educational videos. You can sign up for our artist grant for the chance to receive two thousand dollars. Can buy affordable original contemporary art through our partnership with Sugar Press. And you can become a supporter through Patreon if you want. So be sure to check out our website today for all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Thanks again for tuning in today, ladies and gentlemen. We have a special show. The one and only Gare Maxwell is with us today. And I ain't going to lie, Gare and I just met. We don't go way back like some of our guests. Gare actually connected with us via LinkedIn, which uh, is awesome to see these social platforms working and adding value to our lives. And Garrett actually reached out to uh, thank me for a podcast episode he had heard. I had interviewed Scott Bedberry, the former CMO of Starbucks and the former advertising director for Nike. And some of you probably heard that episode, but Scott's a good friend. He's been on the show. And uh, anyway, Garrett caught it and really appreciated the conversation and sent me an email just to thank me. And compliment the show, which is always nice to get praise and get some good positive feedback. But what was also cool is that Gare hails from Canada, north of the border. We're international people. And Gare was, uh, who lives in Canada, he picked up the episode. Uh, actually, I think he's discovered us on LinkedIn. So that's how he's been uh, listening to the podcast. But we were talking, going back and forth. I read up a little bit on him and I said, man, Gare's a perfect guest for our show too. So we should have him on. And so I invited him to come and sit down and chat it up, chop it up with me for a while. And it was a sheer pleasure. It was a sheer joy. And listen, I mean, I was, I ain't gonna lie. I was a little nervous. I was a little anxious because Gare is a professional broadcaster. This guy has racked up over 10,000 interviews and 30,000 broadcasts as an award-winning radio and television broadcaster in Canada. So for him to come on our little show with me, Sourdough, of all people, I mean, what could go right? <laughs> I don't I don't know. Not, we would see, right? So I was, I was a little nervous. I thought, well, if Gare's willing to come on, he's heard the show before, maybe he feels like it might be worth the risk. And I, I think it was. It was a fantastic conversation. I mean, 
Gare's a pro and he makes it look easy and he was super easy to talk to. And listen, I mean, this guy consults with some of the biggest companies in the world. He's a global authority for helping organizations create iconic brands. So he consults, he consults with CEOs and CMOs with huge companies, Apple, Caterpillar, Napa, I mean, you name it. He's spoken at numerous conferences and seminars. He shared the stage with other dynamic human beings like Richard Branson. And so to have Gare on the show, I mean, really class up the joint for us. It was it was really nice to have him on. And we sort of instantly bonded over our uh, mutual uh, love uh, that we have for a particular rock band, which I won't reveal right this very second because you're going to hear it in about, you know, I don't know, 30 seconds. So it was great. It was great. He was super, super charming, super fun, super smart, and just a joy to talk to. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from the one and only Gare Maxwell. Gare Maxwell, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Well, I'm so delighted to be here. In fact, Scott, I how do I say this? I would have crawled through twice the amount of L.A. traffic that you did just to be on this show with you. Oh, my friend. I'll tell you what, be careful what you say, because uh, I don't know that anything is worth that amount of pain and suffering. But I tell you what, I am so grateful that you're here. Our coming together today is sort of a, shall we say, to the credit of social media and proper digital marketing. I mean, you discovered the podcast on LinkedIn because, of course, we promote the podcast on LinkedIn. And, and you know, and, and here we are. I mean, isn't that beautiful? It is. It's a lot of people. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, Scott. A lot of people like to complain. They love to complain about like Facebook and social people. media. And, <laughs> and, and there's all kind. There's no shortage of things to complain about. But when you stop and think about it, virtual technology like the platform we're on now, Zoom, LinkedIn, YouTube, how else are we going to connect with so many wonderful, interesting people, hear so many compelling stories. Like I went so, how do I say, just hardcore on your podcast when I heard Scott Bedbury. There's an author that I've admired for quite a while. I admire his work with Nike and Starbucks, but the way you guys were just chatting up a storm, it was like, wow, this is fantastic. And I, I always look at it that way, Scott, that sure, we've never met in person, but I think it's the way of the world now, and it's a good thing, and we got to embrace it more and more. Absolutely. And it's one thing to meet up on social media. It's like dating, right? It's like just because you go on a date doesn't mean you're going to get married, right? So the fact that we discovered each other on social media, and then I and I said, huh, wait, let me learn a little bit about Gary. Let me see what he's really about. Because we actually do have him. I know it was pretty obvious that we had a mutual love uh, for brands and marketing and helping organizations and, and individuals achieve greatness in their business and their lives, so on and so forth. But then as I was sort of, I popped the hood and I was looking under the uh, Gare Maxwell hood and looking at the engine, I realized, oh my God, we also share a mutual love and passion for the one and only Eddie Van Halen and the incredible rock band Van Halen. Well, for me, it goes back to 1978 at Harrison Trimble High School in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. I may have been the first in my high school to get that copy of Van Halen 1. 
And how do I say this, Scott? Eddie Van Halen and his music, there's the soundtrack of my life for 42 years. And when he passed, man, that was a that was tough. I mean, with respect, I don't know how Ozzy and Keith Richards and Willie Nelson are still around and Eddie Van Halen's not, because you still picture that boyish smile, the flying scissors kick, and just the sheer magical wizardry that he would extract out of six strings and 10 fingers. Uh, but yeah, I could don't wind me up because I could get unchained <laughs> and start running with the devil here yeah. <laughs> pretty hot and heavy in a hurry. Absolutely. Well, it's also a testament to how greatness and great brands and great organizations and great individuals are uh, created because they don't accept the status quo. They reinvent and they innovate. And in Eddie's case, I mean, the guy literally built his own guitars because he wanted to achieve a unique and bespoke and distinctive sound. And that's what it takes if you want to be unique and individualistic and say something fresh and original in the world. You have to sometimes deconstruct and reconstruct, don't you? Yeah. And, and just hearing you say that, Scott, it reminds me of something I've been, and probably like you, I get fascinated by different things at different times. And my latest is The Authentic Swing. The author mm. is Stephen Pressfield. Yes. The War of Art. Yep. Yep. But his, his authentic swing concept from the legend of Bagger Vance is something that's really twirling around my brain cells and flowing through all kinds of synaptic connections, the authentic swing, it's, it's remembered, it's not learned. And I think that's what Eddie Van Halen in his profession is testament to is that he found his authentic swing, found it early and really honed it just like any great golfer would hone their swing. And I see these parallels everywhere, Scott. I don't know if you do as well, but that people will often tragically go their entire lifetime and never find what they're really supposed to do. When yes. does that? I don't know if that makes any it sense. Or not, it's, but that's, it's true. That's it's kind sad of what, but true. What, yeah. 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 And so, again, Eddie Van Halen for me is very metaphorical and symbolic that way. I mean, that dovetails into the work that I do. I'm always trying to figure out, well, how can we communicate something metaphorically and symbolically to increase under a deeper level of understanding so people feel it as opposed to what I fear has become a very data-driven, analytically obsessed KPI overdose society, especially in the business world? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And before we go down that rabbit hole, I have to ask this one question because sure. when I was watching some of the videos and I watched the video that you produced and you were talking about Eddie, I couldn't help but notice, maybe I'm reading into it. I need to find out what the truth is. Yeah. But it seemed like to me that the tie you were wearing, kind of the stripes on the tie may have been a homage to the stripes on Eddie Van Halen's guitar. Uh, am I imagining this or you are uh, is that a real thing? not. I will plead guilty on all counts to being 
a somewhat regular customer at the Van Halen store. Excellent. Let me explain. You see, there's all kinds of little items you can pick up, and they will actually, in today's day and age, they will ship it right to your door. <laughs> you don't have to leave the house to get the latest Van Halen memorabilia. And so whether it's the striped tie or, let me see, the mini Frankenstrat or... I make no. <laughs> you got all the no, swag. I love it. Yeah, I I love the swag. I do. <laughs> Guilty in all counts. You got uh, me. Yeah, no, that's great. And and by the way, just for the listeners' sake, let's point out that the tie was actually quite sophisticated, quite cool because it was kind of black on black. You weren't wearing the red, white, and black <laughs> stripes, which is also cool. But anyway. Hey, you were looking we very smart, on, my friend. My British friends would call you smart. You were very, you were dressed very smartly. Before we move on off the Van Halen subject, because this is an interesting story that, and let's face it, you and I are really just meeting for the first time, but there's a story behind that video. I think the listeners of Not Real Art would appreciate this. Because I, I think what you're doing, Scott, and this is why I love your podcast, is you're not doing the regular stuff at all. <laughs> that's why it spoke to me. Oh my goodness. This is actually like just two people talking. So when Eddie Van Halen passed away, my son called and he's in another province here in Canada. And I had introduced him to Van Halen's music when he was <laughs> even before he could talk type thing. Yeah. But it's my son who called. And I remember that very heavy feeling. And I do a video blog and I send it out very consistently. And I'm almost, you know, trying to profile and capture the essence of leaders and legends. And you know that feeling, Scott, where there's a story and I got to do this story. And I, I'm not even explaining it well because it was so, I just got to do this. Sure. I don't Heart feel felt. right. Yeah. This story doesn't get told. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's paying homage. It's paying tribute and with deep respect. So. I post this video in, it was what, maybe 10 days or so after he passed mm -hmm. with our regular publishing schedule. Do you think for a minute, Scott, that I would have ever expected that six months later, five months later, sorry, five months later, that the guy who runs the biggest Eddie Van Halen fan page on Facebook would grab that video and put it right at the front of the page. Amazing. So well, good. I'm telling you this is I still get to this day. I've had hundreds of people, like hundreds. I've never felt that before or seen that. Just pouring their hearts out with how much they love that video. And what I love most about it, and I think you would relate to it, it had nothing to do with business or marketing or brand or anything. It was just, hey, let's connect on another level and share our appreciation for someone who was truly great, who, by the way, started with nothing. When yep. they came to America and when they settled not too far from you in Pasadena, the Van Halen family had nothing. They did it. You talk about bootstrapping. That's what they did. But I just wanted to share that people are, can find that video. And it's, I think it's the most viewed video I've ever had. And it had nothing to do with what I do. If you know right, what I mean. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a true labor of love and honoring this great artist, Edward Van Halen. And it was clearly done with nothing but, as you say, deep respect and love and sincerity 
So I encourage anybody, any of the listeners to check it out because it truly is a special, a special thing. But I mean, this is a good segue right into so much of the work you do because you've written books, you talk all over the place. Oh my God, you, you've won awards, you've consulted uh, with the biggest companies, some of the biggest companies in the world, but we're just getting to know each other. And I've just done some little bit of research, but it really feels like the main thrust of everything you do is trying to help organizations, help individuals live up to their potential, right? That's very well said. And when we talk about living up to their potential, if you want to get deep into the weeds of this, but in a very general way that anyone can can latch on to, it's about understanding that everyone has got a story to tell. And I was very lucky. <laughs> I was so fortunate years ago, Scott, I found someone who also believe that you could build something bigger and achieve that kind of potential you just referenced if they could step into their own story. Mm. And so many people in business and life are so hesitant to do exactly that. What's your story? What's your signature? Nike has a story when I heard you with Scott Bedbury. I just loved hearing that because Nike's story deep down is summarized in three words. Whether you yep. like the product or not, yep. they nailed it in three words. Just mm. do it. And they've been telling that story very, very successfully since 1988. Well, Big Little Legends is my attempt to say, hey, you don't have to have the deep pockets of Nike. You don't have to be Starbucks. You don't have to be anyone on the Fortune 100. You can be that small to medium-sized business, that Big Little Legend. Find your story. Step into that. Be that. And then if you can do that, you've basically made the competition irrelevant. Well, one of the reasons why, yes, and because there's only one you, you are inherently a category of one if you want right. to be. If you right? want to be. If Absolutely. you want to be. And it's interesting because we live in a time where we celebrate these amazing companies, these amazing brands, these amazing organizations, whether it's Starbucks or Nike or Google or Apple or whatever. However, the truth of the matter is, I think back to so many of the kids that I grew up with and their dads my own father, but as well, but so many people that I knew, and I'm 51 this year, but the reality is looking back, these were successful men and women because they built their big little legend brick by brick, day by day, month by month, year by year. It was a slow, steady, faithful slog to carve out their business, their story, whatever it is. And they were truly a big little legend in that community or in that city or in that region. And they were happy and they were well-fed. They had a good quality of life. And that really is lost, I think, these days as we celebrate these big IPOs or these big companies that raise a bunch of VC money and so on and so forth. But the reality is small business truly does drive most community economies and so on and so forth. So to help them step into their story and become their best selves is truly important work that you're doing. Well, I appreciate that. It really has been a ride where you pinch yourself sometimes, like never in my wildest dreams, Scott, that do you think ever 
Like I come from the east coast of New Brunswick in Canada, and I'm in London, Ontario now. But if you'd have told me even a few years ago that you'd be doing a full day live streaming event with one of the biggest ad agencies in the world because they saw your two and a half minute Big Little Legend video, I would never have believed you. So every day it's like and every week it's like this. Wow, look what happened now. <laughs> it's because I've seen this movie play out many, many times. If you're curious about where it all started from, because some people will ask me, well, how did, where does this concept come from? And part of it actually was as, as someone who was featured on your show. Who's Joe that? and Justine Medeiros. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, and not them per se, but he, here's yeah. what happened. The listeners can play along and the viewers can play along, Scott, but think about it this way. What is the most famous painting in the world? Yeah, Mona Lisa. Right. And I've been on stage at speaking events, for example, in Vegas or other big cities. You know the drill. You've got right. 500, you got got 1,000 people. I'll do it with live audiences. Mm -hmm. And now with Zoom audiences, what's the most famous painting in the world? Well, what did 999 people out of a thousand answer? Yep. The Mona Lisa, like yep. every time, right? Yep. Yep. And so Joe and Justine, because of your show, I was able to connect with them. Isn't this great? This is so good. This is fantastic. I was able to connect with them and tell them the story of what happened. Where nice. we were at the Louvre a few years ago, I'm going to say it was around 2014 or so. And mm -hmm. for anyone who's been, and I've been there several times, but it was on that last visit, Scott, I'm looking around and I tend to do this. I'm looking around and I'm thinking, physically, I'm at a museum. Metaphorically, I'm not. Mm. That's important for anyone who wants to understand how this works. Yeah, I'm in a museum, but metaphorically, I'm in a market. And there's 35,000 competitors in the market. That's the number of paintings and exhibits yes. and artifacts are at the Louvre. So here I am wandering around that day, and I'm going through all these galleries, and I'm seeing these magnificent have you been by the way yes i have yeah okay so you put Incredible. you can put yourself in that scene yes, right where you're yes. looking at these magnificent works of art adorning some of these huge galleries and and there's no spectators there's no audience you're standing there and you're the only one looking at this well when you turn the corner and go to one gallery what do you see nothing but people yeah. It's the mob rules. It's Black Sabbath, Ronnie James Dio, when he replaced <laughs> Ozzy on tour. But that's what it is. It's, and the mob is all there to watch one painting. Yep. And they don't even know why. Right. So that was the inspiration. And it's actually in the first chapter of the book coming out. And so why? Well, why did that happen? And by the way, for your listeners... And for you, as we meet today, I am a recovering broadcast journalist. So I did 20 years of radio and television recovering. from the newsroom. I was in the yeah. newsroom. I didn't play records. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So my natural journalistic instincts kicked in. And why is this thing so famous? Sure. And if we were to talk marketing speak, why does that painting have absolute top of mind brand awareness? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Why? Mm -hmm. And so I discovered that what happened was August 21st, 1911, the painting is not only stolen 
But at a time before the invention of radio, before the invention of television, and all the communication devices we know today, it went mainstream viral in the newspaper. It was front page <laughs> everywhere. The yep. thing is stolen, and there was conspiracy theories back then. Imagine that, Scott. There were conspiracy <laughs> theories back in 1911. and The more the things change, the more they stay the same, right? Yeah, and the chief of police resigns, and France has <clears throat> been humiliated. For two years, this perpetuates, and what happened was... The Mona Lisa got millions and millions and millions of dollars of free publicity that no painting ever got before or since. And I think Joe and Justine in their brilliant work said it would took, what, 30, 40 hours before they even noticed the, the thing was missing. Don't tell <laughs> me it was the most famous. It wasn't. It wasn't. No, it wasn't. And then when they recovered the Mona Lisa and brought it back to Paris, 120,000 people are there waiting for it. It's like Tom Brady is coming. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's coming back home. Well, there That's it is. Right. And yeah. And so the Mona Lisa story illustrates that it really isn't about the art itself. Was it a great painting? Yeah. But what put it way over the top in terms of top of mind awareness? How many world-class paintings are there at the Louvre? I'm going to say all of them. You yes. got to be world class <laughs> yeah. to get there. Let's go out on a limb and say all. Yeah, of them. <laughs> let's go out on a limb. And so, the theory that I'm advancing and I talk about a lot is that is that what would have happened if the thief Vincenzo Perugia had made off with another painting that day? What if he doesn't take the Mona Lisa, Scott? Then what? Right. Right. What are we talking right. about today? Yep. It's that painting, and yep. so it really. And this is what I speak to uh, with business audiences and CEOs is that a story either happens to you or you got to make one happen. And in the case of the Mona Lisa, yeah, she got lucky. It happened to her. It mm. happened to a guy selling soup out in Manhattan, November 2nd, 1995. A lot of people sold soup in Manhattan back in 95, but one guy got hit by that lucky bolt of lightning. Are you talking about the Seinfeld uh, the episode? There, I guess, I, see, Scott, I guess his brand development yeah. uh, odyssey is over. One and yeah. done with one episode of Seinfeld. See, <laughs> right. you could luck out, but more often than not, you're going to have to create the story. You're going to yes. have to somehow conceptualize a story because what the Mona Lisa shows universally is that art without a story is just paint on a canvas and a business without a story just like every other business. So, Gare, this begs the question I have to ask, what is your story, my friend? What is your story? Yeah, my story is, how shall I put this? There's 100,000 experts out there in the branding and marketing space. Would you agree? I thought there was more like 200,000, but yes. Maybe there's two. Okay. <laughs> I agree. Uh -oh. Yes, there's a lot yeah, of them 200, out there. 200,000, and I'll raise you another 50,000. Right. What I identified years ago, Scott, is that, and this is true to my own principles, is that if everyone zigs, you got to find a way to zag, right? 100%. Right. And so what I dug into was, wait a second, no one's really doing a deeper dive on the enduring, on the origin of legends and understanding how to decode their enduring appeal and use that as not only a framework, but as a base, if you will, mm -hmm. to create great brands from. 
study how the legends do it, and then basically adapt some of those principles. That's what I fell into because partly not only a recovering broadcast journalist, I'm an absolute history nerd and junkie. I live, like right now, I'm studying Martin Luther and the Reformation from the 1500s. I'm a big military history buff. Legends was just a natural extension of the kid who was already the history nerd when he's eight, nine years old reading, are you ready for this, Scott? Big, thick books on generals and admirals and campaigns. And so it was just one of those things that once I figured out that was the sweet spot, build everything off that. But let's go way back because, you know, it sounds like you grew up on the eastern coast of Canada. Right. Correct. And then, but initially you found you were a history buff. Clearly you were enjoying education and learning, yet somehow you found yourself in journalism and radio journalism. I mean, take us back, help us understand how a cute kid from the East Coast of Canada ends up in the doggy dog uh, world of TV radio journalism. Well, the TV radio journalism thing, the dream here, let's get real personal because this is yes. what this let's show is all dream. about, right? Yes, that's right. The dream, I'm going to shamelessly name drop a guy, could even be a future guest on your show. For all I know, he's a past guest, but I, he, I hear he's big in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, yeah? His name is, yeah, his name is Ted Sobel. Ted Sobel? Sobel. Well, yeah. Ted Sobel. Okay. I mean, you're dropping knowledge for me right now. I'm sorry. I, I don't get out much. I never heard so of him. So <laughs> Ted Sobel, S-O-B-E-L, if you look him up, just wrote okay. a book called Touching Greatness, but he's okay. like the longest tenured sportscaster in Los Angeles. Got in your market. It, right. Oh, that Ted. Got it. Yes. <laughs> I, I was thinking maybe there's a chance you guys maybe even cross paths or you heard him on the radio or saw him on TV. Well, that was the dream. For me as a kid coming out of high school, when I realized, I will admit, I had big, and I mean big rock star dreams. One problem, no talent. Couldn't play an instrument, can't carry a note. Okay, so great. Broadcasting beckoned. And so I fell into this world of the newsroom. Back then it was, you covered things like school boards and city council meetings and political rallies. And I did some of that to learn some of the basic skills. But then I got into sports casting. I wound up doing over a thousand games of play-by-play in the American Hockey League with the top affiliates of the Calgary Flames, the Winnipeg Jets, the Edmonton Oilers. Are you a hockey fan by chance? You know what? Here's the thing. I respect the hell out of hockey. Hockey is the ultimate sport. What those guys do on a razor's edge is supernatural. It's at high speed. It's a lot of instinct. It's very tribal. It takes a warrior mentality to win that Stanley Cup. So so I was really involved in that business for a long time. And then what happened was towards the end of the late 90s, the company I was working for decided, well, they didn't need so many of us guys who had been around for a little bit and as a company, they could replace us with younger, cheaper talent. And for me, it was May 21st, 1999. I read the 1230 news on CFQM radio, news, weather, and sports. I get called into the office. I got a two-sentence letter on company letterhead informing me of my termination. And so within a week, I'm on the unemployment line. You're broke. You're busted. (laughs) 
And you've also been publicly humiliated because you go home later that day and there's the story of your dismissal. It's on the front page of the only paper in the two station town. So it's Scott, it's the double hit. It's loss of income, but more than anything, it's loss of identity. And I had no university education. Like we're talking nothing to fall back on zero. And it was kind of a bit of an accident where I fell into a world that I knew nothing about. It was soft skills business training. And it was kind of like a Canadian knockoff of Dale Carnegie, if you want Mm -hmm. to know the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I was already getting a little tired of the repetitive nature of broadcasting. I wasn't that sure you got some name recognition in your hometown. You're part of the morning show. You know what I mean? You're the Mm -hmm. one of the bigger, higher profile personalities. But for me, the act was wearing a little thin anyway. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. this business thing, I knew nothing about it, but it was intriguing. And unlike a radio booth or a TV studio, which is a very artificial world, well, working with a company and real people who are responsible for moving that company forward for me, represented such a breath of fresh air. It was something real. And I worked at it, Scott, and I wasn't very good when I started. Did a lot of making stuff up as you go, Mm -hmm, (laughs) right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then I found someone that, and I didn't know it when I met him. I didn't know how things would evolve, but he became the origin of this whole concept. You needed someone that you could run to the races with, right? Almost work as a tag team, if you will. And when I met Jim, it was September of 02. He's got five employees. He's selling an interchangeable product in a crowded competitive market. And he's doing pretty good. He's he's doing around 1.2, 1.3 million a year. Like it's a small mom and pop operation, but it's, in the category that has the worst public perception and reputation on planet earth. The worst. What was it? Used cars. (laughs) I was almost going to say pornography, but uh, (laughs) used cars is worse. So the guy selling used cars got, and I can remember it like yesterday. He comes up at, we were at a Fredericton chamber of commerce event. He comes up and introduces himself And he shows me his, he hands me his business card and he's this very quiet kind of aw shucks, kind of almost shy guy. If he's a Seinfeld character, Scott, he's a low talker. Yeah, right. No, I'm just sharing this. He doesn't fit the stereotype. And he hands me this card. It says, it's got this, the glow of one warm thought is to me worth more than anything. Thank you. Very kumbaya. And I just thought that was different. So the short, short story for this, for anyone listening, is that Jim and I started working together on this soft skills stuff, customer service training, Mm -hmm. team building, just getting his little team aligned. And he was very much into personal development and professional development. He was a big fan of Zig Ziglar and all these types of things, right? He really is that optimistic, but it's important for me to say kind of quiet, almost reserved, but a genuinely nice guy. Yes. And it's not until four years later, we were talking earlier about stepping into your truth. Mm -hmm. 
What we've learned is that you can't create a legend without a story, and you can't create a story unless it's grounded in emotional truth. Yep. And I'll summarize his story in four words. If Nike has three words, Jim Gilbert has four. And in September of 2006, we did something that nobody else had ever done, and we put 30-second ads on the radio and never talked about the cars. Because think of all the car ads. They all sound the oh, same. Oh, yeah. No, no. You, yeah. you, they were zigging and you guys zagged. We were zagging. And, and we told 30-second stories about Canada's huggable car dealer. <laughs> I love it. He's the Casanova of customer focus. He's the Romeo of Roadsters. By golly, he's been called the McDreamy of Drive. Stop by at Jim Gilbert's and get your daily dose of Hugtonium designed to improve your love affair with your car and your libido. <laughs> brilliant and we did dozens of those types of spots and before mm. you know it before too long scott complete strangers were coming up to the guy yeah asking for a hug hug <laughs> right and so the turning point was it wasn't just telling stories on the radio and it wasn't about marketing about six weeks in, they realized, and it was Jim's wife, Donna, who had the brilliance. The burst of brilliance came from Donna. Mm -hmm. And she says, we can't just talk about it. We have to be that thing. And huggable became the metaphor for really taking care of people and became the metaphor for creating something that no one else could do. And before too long, dozens of teddy bears are there. Then it was hundreds of teddy bears. And then it's mascots and merry-go-rounds. And then there's the two kilometer nature trail to go walk your dog. Like if Walt Disney imagines a used car lot, this is it. And it's in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And by the end of 2020, they were 38 employees north of $50 million. It's an incredible, <laughs> it's one of Canada's great small business success stories. And for me, it became an incredible real-life laboratory to test and study, you know, how can we positively influence buyer behavior in our favor when fundamentally all the products are basically the same. Right. And I love that story for so many reasons, not the least of which is that it's, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, I'm just saying like, it's not rocket science. Right. Treating your customers well, respecting your customers, charming your customers with your humanity. These are powerful metaphysics you know, or whatever. And it's not that hard. Anybody can do this. Yes. Anyone. And what we've learned, Scott, and I know you'll appreciate this. There has to be more than just making a buck. Anyone can, like, do you have to be profitable? Yes. No one's arguing that, but You've got to bring something more to the table if you want to create something truly irresistible, something remarkable, something that actually creates legacy, then that's what you have to explore and be willing to, I always say for Jim Gilbert and I, when our shared story, if it has a common theme, it's embracing the wisdom of uncertainty. It's no different than how many podcasts, what's your number? What are you into right now? Oh, wow. I think certainly, I guess with the ones I have in the can, I guess we're close to 160 now. Yeah. Right. But when you remember when you started, you oh, didn't yeah. have all the answers. No, no, I still right? don't. <laughs> no, but right. you, you had yeah. to embrace the wisdom that's of right. uncertainty to that's get right. going. No, exactly. And I think that that's such an important philosophy for life. 
and such an important point that was, I guess, hard for a lot of people. Everybody's wired differently. But for myself, I'm kind of a jump first and let's build the parachute on the way down or something, right? I mean, it's let's go, let's experiment, let's learn, let's test, let's let's just do some research, figure out what we'll learn and go, go, go. Yeah, like without even knowing your story, I already kind of know he had to have jumped and had taken a leap of faith and one door after another starts to open up. What I've realized is that people who've been trained in classical models of education or gone certain routes with university, they don't always want to do that. They want all the answers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure it checks all the boxes, <laughs> right? And, and they want yeah. guarantees. And, and if you want to create something truly legendary, especially with something as intangible as a brand, there are mm -hmm. no guarantees. Right. But you've got to be the one to basically, like we were talking about earlier with, with Stephen Pressfield and the legend of Bagger Vance, you're the golfer metaphorically. You got to step up to the tee and you yeah. got to put the ball in play. Well, absolutely. And, you know, talking about zigging and zagging and stepping into your story and differentiating in a parody marketplace, these and more are the reasons why I chose the name Not Real Art. Yeah, I love that. Like, Thank you. Yeah, no, it, because Not Real Art was very intentional. It's incredibly intentional. And what's been so interesting is that artists get the joke immediately, immediately. Not only do they get the joke, they love the joke and they appreciate it because they instantly know we understand them. We get them. We're one of them. And if I talk to, shall we say, more conventional stakeholders in the art world, so curators, gallerists, patrons, collectors, most times the joke is completely lost on them. <laughs> you know, they'll say, not real art. I, I don't understand. What does that mean? Not real art. <laughs> well, know? for me, I, if, if you'll permit me as a listener, as a regular listener to the show, the first time was so powerful because it was like, oh, that's different. As soon as I hear that or see that, now you've got my attention. And I think... That's what a lot of the marketing community obsessed with their SEO and trips to the magic keyword store are forgetting is, wait a second, how are you going to get someone's attention in the first place? Right. How are you going right. to do that? Yes. And so on behalf of a lot of your listeners and your fan base growing every day. In on, Canada, no on, less. I love it. In Canada, on social media platforms near you. Like, <laughs> I'm curious, well, where does sourdough come from? <laughs> I, wow. I've looked and maybe I haven't looked in the right places, but I think I'm just asking the question that people listening to us right now, because sourdough, there's, what's that? See, <laughs> you did it again. You got me. Well, I'm glad you asked, Gare, <laughs> because a lot of people wonder where the hell that came from, and I perhaps don't explain it enough. And so here's an opportunity I'll share with you the origins of sourdough, right? And yes, it does start in the backcountry, <laughs> literally and figuratively, right? So, well, first of all, I'll give you the kind of larger context, and I'll drill down a little bit. When we started the podcast, it was my first opportunity in life or in work or what have you to work with under a pseudonym throughout my career. I've never had to have a pseudonym and I didn't even need a pseudonym for this, but I thought, oh, why not? It'll be fun. Let's come up with something that I can use as sort of my on-air brand, if you will. And so, but of course, like with any brand, 
right? It's got to be rooted in a sense of integrity, authenticity, and, and yes. truth. It's got to be rooted in truth. Right. So, you know, the initial ideas of what my pseudonym would be. And of course, my friends were saying, you should be this and you should be that. And none of them were resonating with me personally. Right. And it's got to start with me. Right. Well, one day it hit me like a ton of bricks that for me, the perfect pseudonym was sourdough. And so was right. Why? Okay. So there's a short answer and a long answer to this question, and I'll try to make it quick. So the short answer to the question, why sourdough is because I am the author of a sourdough cookbook, okay. Okay. cooking the sourdough way tips, tales, and recipes for cooking sourdough in the back country. Okay. It's out of print now, but it made it to its second edition. You could probably buy it on Amazon, but it was published in 1994 initially, and it went out of print, I think in 2010. So why the hell though, did I write a sourdough cookbook? Well, my fellow Canadian, although I'm not Canadian, but sort of were brethren because I did live in northern Manitoba, uh, 120 miles southwest of Churchill. Wow. In the bush. That's cold. Very cold. <laughs> 68 below zero the first night. And I lived in the bush like Grizzly Adams for a year. Built a log cabin, hunted moose, lived off the land. Uh, not just myself, but my buddy and I, we were caught. We dropped out of college. Talk about taking risks, talk about finding your truth, talk about taking big risks. In college, we said, you know what? Let's screw this college stuff. Let's go do something amazing. We might die, <laughs> but we might live and it could be worth it. So we headed up to uh, Northern Manitoba, Canada, where we lived in the bush for a year. Now, in the bush, of course, you're hunting, you're fishing, you're, but you have to bake your own bread because there's no bakery. I mean, like I said, we were 120 miles away from the nearest town. So we were landlocked in the bush. We had to charter a bush plane to drop us off and the whole thing. So I became very good at sourdough cooking and baking. So sourdough pancakes, sourdough breads. And I ended up writing a sourdough cookbook. Because was there something about the sourdough that was, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Was it a more convenient way to cook up north with the limited resources? So the thing about sourdough starter is that if you take care of it, it could last you generations. I mean, okay, it, it literally it is. is a is a, it's an leavener. It's a natural leavener that if you take care of it, it could feed you and your family for generations. Okay. It's a beautiful thing. Now, the kind of the other interesting part of the story is that if you do some reading about the gold rush of the late 19th century, mid late 19th century into Alaska, you will read about these backwoodsmen prospectors who became known as sourdoughs. Right. And Alaska sourdoughs, because they came to Alaska, they stayed, they ended up living in the bush, they used sourdough and they stayed and they became quite adept. And as they became kind of sort of real woodsmen, their moniker became, they became known as uh, sourdoughs. And so when I decided to start the podcast and find my pseudonym, I thought sourdough would be ideal for me for all of these reasons. Well, it's perfect on so many levels because it sets you apart. I think if I may pay homage and respect to you, my friend, suddenly you're not the L.A. guy with Tinseltown glitz, <laughs> glamour, and a new starlet every week in, in all the tabloids. You're not, right? That's not you. You went to bush country in northern Manitoba. 
how many people from La La Land would have dared go on that adventure? It's true. It just speaks to being curious, right? It speaks to having a vision for your life in all candor. I mean, I was born in Gary, Indiana, which in the 70s was the murder capital per capita of the United States. I grew up in a small blue collar steel town called Portage, Indiana, just on Lake Michigan, outside the city of Chicago, 40 miles. And unlike a lot of my classmates, I just, I couldn't wait to get out of there. (laughs) I just, and for me at the time, Chicago was right there. And I used to ditch school, take the train, go into Chicago and have grand adventures as a kid. Begin, it was just calling to me. So the sense of curiosity, the sense of risk taking, and you, sometimes you just have to say, yes, you just have to say, yes, don't overthink it. Don't question it. Don't you just say, yes, have the courage to take a risk and say, yes, and open amazing things will happen and can happen and will happen. And, and when this opportunity to move to Canada came along, I just knew that it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I had to say, yes. See, I love those stories, Scott, because I have found that theme to be so consistent in terms of, like, for instance, if you were to ask, if you and I were to ask anyone listening to give us the human qualities and characteristics to describe a person that they believe to be legendary, would you believe it falls in, there's a certain pattern that will emerge from that question. So I've asked more than 2,000 people, right? How would you, as mere mortals, when you think about people that you consider to be legendary, earlier we talked about Edward Van Halen, great. But whatever your definition is, it's one of those interesting words in the dictionary that people know it, but they can't actually put their finger on it. Does that Mm. make sense? Mm -hmm. What's the criteria, right? Well, it's very... A, it's highly subjective. I asked more than 2,000 people, and we had a list, I'm going to say ballpark, around 450 different characteristics and human qualities. Well, when you look at these characteristics, they fall into four broad themes, if you really chunk them down. And one of them that you just spoke to from your experience in Manitoba, it's mindset. And it's specifically, it's a growth mindset. And the growth mindset that I think Carol Dweck has done a wonderful job with her book. She's done a 20-year research project from Stanford on mindset. And that's exactly when you were talking about, I got to say yes to this, a growth mindset is not afraid to experiment, test things, try things out. Sure, we're going to make mistakes, but the fixed mindset is is the one very resistant, very hesitant, because it's that old story. I'm sure you've heard it many times. It's it's sad. It's the person that doesn't have 20 years experience. It's the one-year experience repeated 20 times, thanks to that fixed mindset. But yeah, growth mindset is such a key component of, no question, the success you're enjoying now with not real art. I think it's fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah, somebody... You'll learn a lot if you listen and pay attention. And for whatever reason, you know, when I was younger, I liked to talk to successful people because I aspired to be one. What you know, however you define success, I just knew that I wanted something more. 
And I remember a mentor telling me early on that about the only thing we can control in our lives is our attitude. Yeah. And that that resonated with me. And I thought, well, you know what? If I really don't have control, I certainly don't of the outside world and what's happening around me. And I can just, and I only really have control of me and my attitude. Well, I'm going to go big. (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to try to laugh and enjoy this life. And the other thing too, I think, and this is a slight, somewhat different take on the subject as well, because again, we all have our own journeys and our mortality isn't always apparent as a young person. However, when I was young, I came face to face with my mortality. My best friend died when I was six. My cousin died when she was 18. I was 17. She was 18. And actually, my grandfather was a minister and he had a church and we would go to my grandfather's church. And so I would see him preside over funerals. You know, I would see him dedicate babies, marry couples and then bury them if they passed. So my mortality was a very real, was very real to me early on. And I thought, well, heck, man, if I only have so many days on this planet, I want to enjoy the hell out of them. And so that was a hugely motivating factor in saying yes and taking chances, moving to the bush. I mean, this the life is what you make it oftentimes. And your attitude is so key to your perception and your perspective on life. It's funny you say that about mortality. And I think mortality also connects with legacy in terms mm-hmm. of how do we want to be remembered after we're mm-hmm. gone, right? Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting subject, Scott, because... I don't know if you know this, but I am the son of a former pro golfer. I did not know that. Fun fact. Yeah. So, and this is kind of also instrumental and pivotal in the whole thing because my dad was born seven minutes from the first tee in St. Andrews, Scotland. So the old course in St. Andrews, the birthplace wow. of golf, yeah. that's where my dad grew up and played the game. Amazing. All right. That's, wow. that's where he learned it. And then he's 17 years old and he gets a letter in the post from Canada. See, he's a Scottish schoolboy champion and his story was in the papers throughout Scotland. He's one of the country's most promising and talented young golfers. So he's getting all this publicity. Well, someone from Toronto got the Scottish newspaper who just happened to be the head pro, saw this, sent dad a letter extending the job invitation. So he's he's got a job offer through the mail. Yeah. Incredible, incredible for us incredible. to believe in this day yes. and age, but that's yes. how it worked, right? Sure. April of 1957, my father comes to Toronto. He's 17 years old, alone in a new country, just starting his first full-time job. Dad won over a hundred tournaments in his career. He was the two-time New Brunswick senior men's champion. Never played on the pro tour, but people don't understand back then in the late fifties, early sixties, there was no tour. There was no, there was no money, Scott. Yeah. Nothing. Dad won the Nova Scotia Open in 1962 and took home first place prize money of $250. (laughs) And then he won it again the next year. And the first place prize money, $250. Right. My, my point for sharing all this is that, and I don't know what you triggered in that reflection on mortality, but dad's really on the back nine now. So he's 81 years old. He mm. still walks 18 without a power cart. Amazing. He's old school all the yeah, way. Yeah, it's, yeah. Scott, 
It's amazing to me that he has a Facebook account, still doesn't know how to use email, <laughs> right? And this summer, we will be, the four of us, we started this in 2019, we did it in 2020, we're doing it again in 2021. My dad is likely the only former pro golfer in the history of the world to have competed in a four-generational foursome three years in a row. How beautiful is that? Just think about that for a second. I've done what a gift. Uh, what a what a price. I'm hoping someone gift. listening can help us out here. We're trying to do research and we can't find we're into golf governing bodies now, and you you can't find any data mm. on what are the statistical odds of a four generational foursome. <laughs> which that's amazing. It, it, How many siblings do you have? Well, I've got two sisters, uh -huh. right? But when you think about this golf thing we're doing, like I said, it's dad and my grandson versus my son and I. They won the last two years, and they've been trash-talking a storm lately <laughs> because they want to make it three years in a row taking home the title. But my point for sharing this is that when we did it the first time, suddenly I saw it in his face. A lot of his life made sense. Mm. that the journey to come over from Scotland, to mm. settle in Canada, and then to see the game that he's loved since he was a kid still being played by his son, his grandson, and his great-grandson. And that, to me, means everything, Scott, because... That's a movie right there, Gary. We got to find you a writer here in Tinseltown, and we've got to write this movie because this is an epic human story. And I mean, well, that it's, it's one of those things. And I do. I feel if I could share with you, I don't know that I did enough as a kid, as a young man, and even into my 40s. It was probably only into my 50s when I started to recognize the greatness of my own father. Mm -hmm. I just think without getting into the the family drama and all sure, that crap. Of course. Yeah. Right. But That's deep down. The course. Yeah. Right. There's a guy who was at the very top of his game. He The timing was off. It was too early for him in terms of really mm -hmm. capitalizing on opportunities and joining the tour and all. That didn't exist, right? Right. But dad was a hard worker, was exceptionally good at a mm -hmm. very tough sport. He was a pioneer of the sport, Very much really. so. Yeah. And literally, Scott, taught hundreds, if not thousands of kids, how to play the game as a teaching pro. Mm. And so one of the things where we feel really good about is that this little tournament, and we've turned it into a little tournament back home, it's creating legacy. But I think for me, more than anything, it's a way to honor my dad in a way that I, I think he should have been honored a lot earlier in life. But if this is the victory lap, then he's earned every bit of it, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is such a beautiful story. So how old were you when he put a golf club in your hand for the first time? Well, that's a story. So I'm like probably four or five or six years old, but I didn't take to the game, to be mm. honest. I didn't. In fact, my earliest memories as a six and seven-year-old is I didn't like the game. I, mm. I found it very difficult and I felt the incredible pressure, unintended, Sure. Not from dad. It never came from my father, but it came from all the well-meaning people at the golf clubs. Right. Oh, you're going to be a good golfer. Right. right. And that pressure, 
was very, very real. And so sure. I kind of got into other things. I became a hockey kid and uh, and then really got heavily into football. And for me, it was about team sports. So I, I never got the golf thing when I was growing up, really and truly. It was only much later in life. And even now I find with the book and chapter 12, it's a 12 chapter book coming out and chapter 12 is the story of how it all comes home with golf as the central theme, right? And I think that's, for me, it's been a way to discover through the game from my father that I never really connected with. Now I connect with it deeply and appreciate it for what it teaches beyond just the obvious. So when does the book come out? Book is scheduled for worldwide release November 9th. It's called Big Little Legends. And the way I've constructed it, it's 12 chapters that doesn't read like a business book. So it starts at the Louvre in Paris, where we talked about, and then it ends at St. Andrews, Scotland. But in between, there's all these different stories of Big Little Legends and how they were created and what was the source? Where did the mythology spring from? Whether it's Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle or Cafe Dumont in New Orleans, these are, they're selling fish and coffee and they're pretty ordinary products, Scott, but yet they have these huge lineups of customers. Yes. Swarming, yes. swarming. See, they're swarming like they're swarming for the Mona Lisa. More than anything, I wanted to break down chapter by chapter this common theme I keep seeing of the lineup. How do you create the lineup? Mm. How do you do that? Right. And do it in a way that really deep down has nothing to do with marketing. Yes. Because people, they see right through that shit. They know, they know when it's oh. real and when it's uh, artificial uh, and people want real. Yeah. And I would say, Scott, since a pandemic, mm. a global pandemic, and I think whether it's social unrest, political chaos, whatever it is, I think people are fed up to and beyond with being lied to. I think they want to plug into something real. I mean, that's what connected me to your show. Oh, geez, this is this is a real guy doing a real show. It's not scripted. Sign me up. Press subscribe. No, that's it, right? That's it. No, it is it. It is amazing how... Uh seemingly difficult it is for people to be authentic <laughs> or companies to be authentic. Like, why is it so hard? Do you think? Because, well, I'm sure you're familiar and it's been overused in the business world. Mm. Simon Sinek did ask a great question yes. years why? ago. Why? Okay. 2009, start with why, right? Mm -hmm. Which a lot of people don't know. It's only 50 people in that little room in Puget Sound. When he did that talk, there's only Incredible, 50 people. Right? Incredible. When you think about it, it's 50 people in a flip chart. And I do honor Simon's work. I think he's asked a great question. People don't care what you do. They don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Mm -hmm. I thought about this for a long time and then I land. So to answer your question, I'm going to land on a question that no one seems to be confronting, which is, who are you beyond your products and services? Mm. So as a way to honor Simon and his work, and because he did the heavy lifting to create that, I go, great. Now let's, let's do our part to advance the conversation further 
and ask the question, well, who are you beyond the products and services? Your sourdough story of northern Manitoba answers the question convincingly. You're the guy who went out and did it. You're that guy. And in verbal shorthand, in this attention economy we're all competing in, or trying to make our way in, or trying to get by in, you're the sourdough guy. You'll always be that Scott. But there can only be one guy who can do that. And that's you. You stepped into your truth, and now you share that truth through this wonderful podcast, right? Like, that's what it is. People aren't asking that question. Who are you beyond the products and services? Because that, you know what that would require, Scott? Probably some reflection. Probably <laughs> got some time for quiet that, time. <laughs> no, we don't have time for that. We've got to execute and we got to get, we got to have some action items. Yeah. We got to have some takeaways and implement them on Monday morning. What are our next steps, Gare? We need next steps. <laughs> next steps, yeah. Like I, we, You and I could have a lot of fun, and maybe we will someday if we do business buzzword bingo. But no, who are you beyond your products? That's a pretty big question. And mm-hmm. what I've learned firsthand, I, I speak to a lot of CEO peer advisory groups. So my audience tends to be people who run companies that on average – and I'm just ballparking here that do between 50 and 500 million a year in annual revenues, but you'd be shocked. You ask any business leader, any CEO that question, who are you beyond the products and services? They don't have an answer. But okay, if you don't have an answer, well, what's the next thing? Maybe we got to start actually thinking about this. Maybe this is important. Otherwise, we run the risk of being swallowed up by the mosh pit of any overcrowded, overly competitive market. Put me down for hell no. It seems pretty universally true that most people want to feel as though they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Right. Right. And whether that's the employee working for the company or whether it's the customer who does business there, if you can show those employees and customers that they are all that they are actually participating in something bigger than a product and bigger than the service of that business that it's connecting to something that's much more meaningful or aspirational or or socially beneficial you're going to stand the test of time as a business more so than if you don't right and that's where i thought i'm circling back to how i met you the first time i thought scott bedbury articulated that very well with what Mm. Nike and Starbucks, why have they stood the test of time? Why? Because it's more than just athletic shoes and coffee, isn't it? Yep. And that still came through in in your conversation with the two Scots, right? I'm going to be selfish and share a story uh, real quick that sort of gets to this. I talked to Scott the other day, we were chatting and we were talking about not real art. And he said to me, he sort of blew my mind, of course. He said, Scott, he goes, you're doing for artists what Nike did for athletes. And I said, do tell. And he said, well, he said, before Nike, athletes didn't have a protagonist. He said, not real art is a protagonist for artists. You know, you guys are advocating and celebrating and empowering artists, just like Nike empowers the athletes. I said, I'll take that. <laughs> That's an honor. Well, absolutely. And I think as the world gets more 
you know what I mean? The business world gets more focused on metrics and mm. logic and mm. and that which is linear and analytical. That's not big picture how you win over the long haul. I think it's art. It, right. In the end, it comes down to the art that you create. And in many respects, your business, yeah. whatever, or your nonprofit right. or whatever right. it is, Think of it as a canvas. I know it sounds very metaphorical, but I do. I see it that way. It's a canvas. And then you paint it the way in the image that you feel yes. good about. Well, what you're getting at, it's interesting because I tend to think of art as a mirror to our humanity, right? So when you look at a piece of art, really what you're seeing is your humanity because it's such a relative personal experience, right? When you see a piece of art, that that artwork kind of becomes a mirror and you get to see yourself and what do you see? And, and, and it's, so it's, it's about humanity. And part of what you're talking about in terms of business, embracing data and metrics, it is really on a certain level, the, what I call the dehumanization yes. of commerce or the dehumanization of business. And my God, this is a tragedy. This is horrible. This is a disaster in the making. Yeah. I think when I see surveillance capitalism running rampant, when I see the CRM out of control, like, why am I going to my bank? Think about this logically. Why am I going to my bank to do a transaction with the teller? Sometimes I need to do a transaction with a real person and then only to come home every time, Scott, this happens every time. I get the automated email. How would you rate your experience with our teller? And will you recommend our bank to other people in your network? Come on, guys. I just went to the teller to cash a check or make a deposit or like, you're a bank. But now you're invading. You know what you're doing? You're really annoying me. But the data hounds want that data. And I'm going, guys, you don't get it. You really don't get it. I'm dying for the day that someone like Apple creates a bank. Yeah, right. It won't be long. <laughs> the iBank. It won't be long. Yeah, and I bet it's called the iBank. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. But Scott, think about it. No. If Apple created a bank, it wouldn't be like yeah. this robotic. The banking industry right up there with the healthcare industry, although not maybe in Canada, but certainly in the U.S., these are industries that people loathe. Insurance, of course, insurance, loathe. And they have such an opportunity to, a company like Apple or some other competitor has such an opportunity because the bar is so low. Right. Right, to create something really special in that space. Yeah, we have an expression, and I love that you brought up humanity because our expression is you got to put a human face in the digital space. Mm. And so many companies, and it's tragic, even small to medium-sized businesses don't actually have like a real human on video that you could actually connect with, see using modern technology. Hey, the whole world is on the phone now. Mm -hmm. And so to your point, that's the opportunity. To me, it's all about opportunity and where it can go. Yes. Right? But before you worry about platforms and mediums and social networking sites, like, do you have a story? Do you have something like people would actually like care about <laughs> beyond your features, advantages, benefits, products, and services? Because everyone's done that to death. 
Newsflash, no one cares about your unique selling proposition. <laughs> no, really, Scott. I mean, we're just meeting for the first time, but have you ever sat at a coffee shop with a crony and and heard that friend of yours say, geez, uh, uh, I really uh, did some business the other day with XYZ Company. They got a great USP. Has, has anyone ever <laughs> spoken like that? Like, that's never happened. I don't hang out with those people. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. It, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. You know, don't but sell me do the steak. Sell me the sizzle, and uh, and make sure I know why I should give a shit and spend my dollar with you versus someone else, and give me something to believe in. Poison. Give me something to believe in. <laughs> Mechanicsburg. Oh. Here's the segue. You're gonna love this. Poison, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Three quarters of the original band. That's where they come from. Amazing. I don't know if you were aware of that or not. I, I was not. Okay, so not too far from you is the Sunset Strip, right? Oh, yeah. So before Poison, Van Halen really paved the way for the whole hair yep. metal movement, Motley Crue, and, and all the rest of them. And Poison was part of that, weren't they? Yes, they were. Okay, in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, there's a company called West Shore Home. You talk about give me something to believe in. You ready mm. for this, yes. Scott? They're in the uh, kitchen renovation business. They're a home improvement company. Okay, mm. They're mm. on a mission to become America's most admired home improvement company. Mm. And I visited with them back in January. Well, I met the CEO in January of 2018. And I knew right away there was something about this guy. There really, really was. And then they brought me in to work with the marketing team. And then they brought me in again to work with the HR team. And when I met these folks, they were doing about 40 million a year, employing about 130 so people in that Mechanicsburg, Harrisburg area of Pennsylvania. So that's January of 2018 when we met. Here we are in 2021. That company now has 1,500 employees 25 locations, 12 different states, north of 500 million. And I can land the plane here real quick. You know why? Because they actually know who they are. They really, really do. And guess what? They're winning the war for talent because guess what? Other people are seeing it, that they're someone we can believe in. Sorry, I got off on that poison riff, but that's what came to mind. That's, no, that's Because great. of the Mechanicsburg connection. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. that's great. And by the way, again, what a space to innovate because nothing's more stressful than when you're trying to find a contractor to remodel your home or to do some addition. And, you know, for a company to come in there and say, we're going to build a brand that people can trust, people can embrace for this very uh, stressful project. What's more precious than your home? Exactly. And here's the part that's very real, which I know you and the listeners of this show are into. I've never seen, we posted something a few weeks back where we kind of profiled the West Shore home story. I've never seen such a flood of real live West Shore home employees sharing mm -hmm. that stuff mm -hmm. and, and commenting and believing in it because 
they're in the trenches and they do attitudinally, Scott, they kind of see themselves as a little bit of a Navy SEALs type mojo. Okay. Sure, sure. Yeah, they're not yeah. the huggable guys at all. <laughs> right, right, right. They're but serious. They're the, <laughs> no, but they're the ones who are on a mission to get things done and yeah, in, right. in an industry that is notoriously fragmented, yeah, that yeah. is yeah, that is fraught with all kinds of incompetence. Right, right. They're running a pro operation. And I think they are well on their way to becoming that which we're speaking of, that West Shore Home will probably be America's most admired home improvement company because they're just going that way. Well, and one of the reasons why they're going that way is because of you, Gare Maxwell, and the work that you've done with them and bringing your passion and expertise and vision and knowledge and wisdom to their team. I'm so grateful for you being on the show today, my friend, and I am excited about this book that's coming out. Where can people buy it? Tell our listeners what they need to be paying attention to in the Gare Maxwell uh, empire coming up. I have a hard time with that because I really struggle with the, you know, they call it the shameless plug, but uh, <laughs> it'll be on Amazon and all that stuff. But the, Great. the like the best way to get, and there's going to be some pre, like we're working with a publisher out of Vancouver. They're fabulous folks. Page two publishing. There's the plug. I'd rather plug them. Let's but, do it. Um, page two publishing. But I page, they have a lot of great books. Yep. Yep. Page two publishing. They've been fantastic to work with Scott. And the easiest thing to get connected is just go to my website. I always tell folks I'm the easiest guy to find on Google. Like you probably figured that out that because it's the spelling of the name G-A-I-R. Yep. Yep. Uh, there's only oh, one Gary Maxwell. Big, so I come you know, right up. Category of one. Yeah. Category one. So right there with my birth name. Yeah, it, it's right there. It's easy. And, and we're going to be, you know, doing some things around the book that I think some of your folks might be fascinated by if, but you got to be curious, right? About, That's right. That's yeah. Right. How are these legends created and why does it matter? And you actually got to stop and reflect on why it matters to you. Right. And that's the biggest thing is, in my view, is that fundamentally, you can't create a legend without a story. But deep down, people have got to come to grips with their story and, and live that. Don't pretend to be anyone else but you. And that, my friend, is a perfect way to end this episode. Garrett Maxwell, thank you so much for being on today. Do me a favor. Will you promise to come back? I would absolutely be overjoyed. I will knock over. I will. You know that scene when George Costanza ran from the fire and knocked over the old lady with the walker? <laughs> That's what I would do to get back on this show. Because oh. as Costanza said that day, Scott, someone had to lead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that episode. And yet another reason why, Gary Maxwell, I love having you on this episode. I look forward to you coming back. My friend, you have a great evening. We'll talk later. Yeah, you too, my friend. And stay out of that LA traffic. I'll do my best. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at Not Real Art World.